shake, turning loose. Pick up the pieces when you need to. Earthquake, hard stone. Sift through the rubble just to find gold. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your excited almost done with the semester seminarian and a people's theology host, Mesa Menega. In this episode, I talk with Rob Saylor. Rob is a professor at Christian Theological Seminary and author of several books, including All Things Into Position, What Theology Can Learn from Radiohead. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Moonlight Graham. Moonlight Graham is a folk rock band from California. You can get connected with both Rob and Moonlight Graham and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of a people's theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today I have with me Dr. Rob Saylor, and Dr. Rob Saylor is the Associate Dean at Christian Theological Seminary, a wonderful theologian, and an author of a number of books, including including now All Things Into Position, What Theology, I wanted to make sure I got that one right, What Theology Can Learn from Radiohead. Dr. Saylor, uh, not only are you all those things, but I'm also a student of you, so you're a teacher of me. And uh, I've really appreciated having you as a professor. You're an absolutely brilliant scholar and a sort of, I mean, you, you kind of have that, that pastoral uh, lens that you, you work with too. And uh, I certainly uh, noticed that in your teaching style and just being a student, it feels very pastoral when, uh, when you interact with us. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mason. So my first question is the, the question I ask every one of my guests. Who is Dr. Rob Saylor to Dr. Rob Saylor? Well, it's, uh, I like that question. I don't, I don't know. Uh, some days I feel sort of opaque to myself, but we'll see. Uh, yeah, I really, um, a few years ago, I decided that the gift that I can best offer to the church, to humanity, is to, rather than offer up my to really tough questions to really try to draw people deeper into the questions themselves mm. and to bring out the questions in all of their dimensions. So to me, what I really love about teaching theology and writing about theology is not so much the moment where I get to give my own opinions or my own constructive theology, right? But rather really where people begin to see how, not only how complex and multifaceted the questions themselves are, but, ra- but also how very faithful, intense Christians of different times and places have tackled those questions differently. Mm. And so I, that can make it a little tricky sometimes, even for me to know what I believe, much less anyone else. But what I believe in very deeply is in occupying questions well and occupying questions humanely. Mm. Mm. Sounds very Bonhoefferian to me. <laughs> I'd like to think so, yeah, <laughs> without claiming too much for myself. <laughs> so as I mentioned before, you just recently wrote a book called All Things Into Position, What Theology Can Learn from Radiohead. Uh, what was something you learned about Radiohead as you wrote the book that maybe you didn't know about them before? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I learned when I when I took the assignment to write the book, a friend of mine says, hey, uh, Cascade's starting this new series on theology and pop music. And would you, they knew I was a Radiohead fanatic from Facebook and so on. <laughs> I've seen them about 15 times live plus mm. uh, 
Adams for Peace, Tom York solo, all that. Mm -hmm. So uh, they said, would you be willing to tackle the Radiohead volume? And when I first said yes, I thought, well, this, this is going to be fun, but I kind of hate to say this, but I'm like, is this going to be serious enough? Like, you know, is this going to be enough grist for the mill for an academic theology book? And what I discovered is that many, many theologians, philosophers, cultural critics are fascinated with Radiohead. Mm -hmm. And I had a private belief that they operate as kind of great literature and great music worthy of serious consideration. But it was actually really gratifying to discover that there's been a ton of stuff written, you know, monographs from Oxford Press, Yale, that sort of thing. So that's one thing I discovered. I think another thing that I discovered is, and it's something that I talk a lot about in the book, is that this is a band that really at various points has been willing to risk it all on experiments. You know, they're, they're not a safe band, even though they've been pretty consistently successful since the 90s. Mm -hmm. At any given point, say the transition from, from uh, OK Computer to Kid A, or the transition from... Um, king of limbs into their most recent one moon-shaped pool they've done enough stylistic shifts and directions that you really get the sense that they're a band that is willing to follow their art wherever it leads mm -hmm. and at the same time they're not a band that is unaware of the power of their own platform they're not unaware of the their commercial success a lot of my I think a lot of my interest in dealing with them is to say, what does it mean to have a band that is so influential, that sells out arenas, that has such a global audience? Mm -hmm. What does it mean for them to still be risk takers? And also, what does it mean for them to leverage their capital, their cultural capital, in such a way that it actually advances the things that they care about, rather than the move of saying, oh, we... You know, that sort of stereotypical indie move of saying, oh, we don't want to sell out. Oh, we don't want right, to be right, right. an XYZ thing. It's like they're, they're not really worried about selling out. They're worried about leveraging uh, the power that they know they have to do greater good. And that really attracts me. Mm -hmm. You've written many books. This is not your first book. Uh, but what did you learn about yourself, particularly with writing this book? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things that I learned about myself is that uh, I really see theology everywhere. And, you know, my, my title at the seminary is I teach religion and culture. And increasingly, I don't, I don't even really recognize the and anymore. Because <laughs> that like theology or religion is sort of this hermetically sealed thing over here. And culture is this other separate thing over there. And what I realized, and I think I learned this from some of my teachers, is that it's not a matter of figuring out what theology is and then going out and applying it to culture. I think the much more interesting task is seeing how are questions of truth, beauty, meaning, God, how are they being worked out in these various cultural expressions, music, art, literature, that sort of thing. And Radiohead's a great example of that, you know, like, Unlike U2 or Bruce Springsteen or something like that, Radiohead doesn't have a lot of explicit religion in their lyrics. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter of figuring out, okay, what's my theological principle and then how is it going to be illustrated by this band? It's a more fun thing where it's like, what is this band trying to do on its own terms? And what does that have to do with the kinds of questions that theologians ask? So I think what I learned about myself is that I can't do theology in any other way other than really muddying the waters between <laughs> what counts as theology and what counts as culture, philosophy, art, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You alluded to this a little bit ago, but why did you fall in love with Radiohead? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It, didn't, it actually didn't happen immediately at first when mm. I was in high school. You know, that was around the time of like, okay, computer, the bends. And um, I heard them and I'm like, oh, this is okay. You know, I was into a lot of alternative rock. You know, it's like, okay, there's somewhere between like Nirvana and Mud Honey for me, mm -hmm. <laughs> as far as like my favorite band. The, the moment I really fell in love with them was Crack Let Down. Mm. Uh, I talk about a little bit in the book, Let Down from uh, OK Computer. The, uh, if you listen to the lyrics there, the lyrics, even by Radiohead standards, are pretty crushing and <laughs> like despair. <laughs> but there's this, 
you know, this sort of arpeggio of um, almost like chimes coming in, especially from Johnny's guitar. And it ends up being kind of this, I almost want to describe it as like a punk rock moment of, okay, even down like in the mess and the shit of this, we are going to fight for beauty. And the thing I love about music is that music doesn't automatically translate itself over into words or concepts. Mm. So when I say that that was the feeling that I got from it, it wasn't like just a way of saying what I just said, oh, we're going to fight for beauty in the midst of ugliness. It's embodying that. It's like mm. performing that in a really intense way. And when I started listening to them with those ears, um, my favorite album, album of theirs actually is one that a lot of fans don't like, which is Hail to the Thief. Mm. Uh, what I love about Hail to the Thief, with the exception of a few songs, is that it really captures this dynamic of basically the rebellion of beauty against brokenness. Mm. I think they do justice to both of those, both the brokenness and the beauty. suggests that Christian theology as a whole ought to learn from Radiohead. However, in what ways have you been personally theologically formed by Radiohead? You know, I think Radiohead certainly contributed to this. It's like either, either speak the truth and have the courage to speak the truth or um or don't talk mm. uh, uh that's there are ways of playing it safe theologically just like there are ways of playing it safe musically mm-hmm. and there are ways of asking okay what does my audience want to hear whether that audience is the church whether that o- audience is the classroom there are ways of doing art just as there are ways of doing theology that try to do that rather than having the integrity of its own conviction, tries to guess what the audience wants. And I think that Radiohead shows me, wow, you know, when you really let your freak flag fly, (laughs) artistically, whether that's theologically, you have to be ready for it to not work, you know, in terms of anyone resonating with it. But the rewards of when you do find that resonance are so great that it just makes me totally uninterested in anything else. Um, you know, even, even with the stuff that I'm working with now, I mean, part of me thinks, okay, I should write a, I should write a longer book on Bonhoeffer, or I should work with like some German theologian, or I should write a book on like a traditional book on Christology or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I love reading what other people do with that. It's not that I don't like that stuff. It's just that I think this book really helped me find my own voice as someone who just wants to theologize with the pieces of culture and art and so on that again aren't necessarily the normal grist for the mill when it comes to what theologians deal with Mm -hmm. but where i think the real action is in terms of how questions of beauty and meaning are being asked and also performed like in broader culture the um yeah I, i i think there's just a deep sense of truth telling in terms of you know, the number, the number one crime, I think, in a lot of society today is inauthenticity. Mm-hmm. And we can say, okay, authenticity can become its own kind of idol. Yeah. But, but uh, I, and I get that. But on the other hand, this continued injunction to, like, tell the truth, whatever else you want to say, make sure that it's on a foundation of truth-telling. And I think increasingly in a that's not just a matter of words or statements or assertions. It, is, it really is a matter of performance. So tell mm-hmm. the truth means perform the truth, mm-hmm. be in the truth. And I, and I think Radiohead to, is an example to me of what it means in a really non-sentimental, non-cheesy way. What does it mean to perform the truth mm-hmm. uh, and to 
performed the truth excellently. I was thinking when you asked the question, I grew up in sort of a punk rock uh, environment uh, mm-hmm. town in Southern Illinois, where I grew up in, even though it's a small town, it's actually noted in the punk history books as, Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, a friend of mine had a garage where a bunch of bands that were traveling from Chicago, Philly, DC, and so on would stop off to play garage shows. Wow. So, um, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, Oblivion has a song called all me. And uh, that's about my hometown. Huh. So I grew up like surrounded and really immersed in punk rock. And, you know, there, I think the ethos was, okay, there's all of this fake beauty. Let's counter it with a blast of almost like raw ugliness. Mm. As I said, now, to me, it's almost like we've become we've become complacent with shallowness and ugliness and the real punk rock move is to give that a blast of beauty. Mm. Uh, beauty is almost beauty. That's authentic and real and raw is almost more punk rock than ugliness mm. these days. And, um, radio, Radiohead in contrast to like, um, I don't know, like sludge metal or something like that. A lot of their music is genuinely beautiful but you get the sense from them that every moment of beauty is earned. Mm-hmm. If beauty is going to be authentic protest, it has to be earned through an encounter with, you know, what Zizek would call the desert of the real, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things you make clear in your book, and I happen to really greatly appreciate it, is that uh, this is not about a theology of Radiohead, nor is it attempting to um, escapulate the God talk of Radiohead's lyrics. Rather, it seems that you're attempting to offer what theology can learn from the overall aesthetic of Radiohead, uh, from whether it's their sound to their performances and everything else in between. So why that particular nuance is it why is that particular nuance more interesting to you to write about rather than maybe writing about a theology of Radiohead? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of theology and culture is still really beholden to terms laid out by someone like Paul Tillich, right? Mm. Tillich, with his method of correlation, basically says, okay, culture asks the questions, and theology provides the answers. Mm. It's really a kind of one-way dialogical street. And a a lot of my motivation is to reverse the order of that. Eventually, I do want to get it to a genuinely dialogical state, mm-hmm. but I think in order to get there, we almost have to overcorrect within theology and say, let's have theology ask the questions for a while, and let's see who else provides, if not the full answer, at least the material for the answer. Mm. So the reason why the subtitle, What Theology Can Learn from Radiohead, was really important to me is that I think it reverses this historic privileging of theology. Yeah. And maybe even institutionally, this historic privileging in some contexts of the church as the ones who, okay, we're going to come in with all the answers, right? Mm. And we've all, I mean, we've all been in settings, many of us have been in settings at least, where it's just cringeworthy the way um, religion interacts with culture, because it is this sense of, oh, Lady Gaga is wrestling with God in, in her, uh, in this song. <laughs> it's like it's like the gospel of matthew says you know and it just comes in this really like clumsy i mean almost like a colonial yeah right um and and people can smell that a mile away and it's it's embarrassing in a in a real respect so to me so it's partly strategic partly saying look if theology is going to have any kind of meaningful dialogue with culture we need to spend some time reversing the order of who speaks when and then, yeah, I, I didn't want to colonize Radiohead. I mean, they're not a religious band. They're not a band that deals with a lot of explicitly religious themes. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I think that what they represent, the art that they make and the phenomenon that they are, is something that theology and the church can learn a lot. And I've already you know, spelled out a couple of those things. What it means to really embrace the fact that the church is in the marketplace and not to somehow make this move of saying, oh, we're, we're a totally alternative or separate community from that. We're totally different from that. But rather say, no, we're in it. We're in it with everyone else. And we need to ask the question, what does it mean to do that well and with honesty and authenticity? Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, I think, what, I think another thing that was on my mind when I was writing it were just all the, 
I, re- I remember uh i remember when green day made their uh album dookie where they were on a major label for the first time and all my friends who had been into green day when they were on uh lookout records were like oh the band is sold out sold out we're not gonna listen <laughs> to them anymore they've sold out and just this sense especially in an internet age that there's some that authenticity means somehow opting out of the mainstream um Another story I had in mind was something I heard about Kurt Cobain. The uh, after he died, his manager was telling the story about how, you know, for Nirvana's In Utero album, the original cover was uh, censored by Walmart and Target and these places. It was too graphic, mm-hmm. and so the manager went to um, Cobain and said, "Look, Walmart's saying they're not going to carry the record unless we censor the cover," and the manager was assuming that. Kurt would like flip out and so the manager was like it's okay we don't need Walmart to carry it we can still sell enough copies and Kurt interrupted him and said look man when I was growing up as a kid in small town Seattle Walmart was the only place I could buy records Mm. of course I want Walmart to carry this record we'll censor the cover and that really resonated with me a because I grew up too in a a small town where Walmart was the only place you know, this is this free internet and so on. You had to like go buy cassettes, right? Right. <laughs> so I'm dating myself here, but uh, the uh, Walmart was the only vendor for that, that or like Columbia House or something like that. And then two, just the fact that what artistic integrity meant in that moment was using the platforms that were available to get this art to people that really needed it, rather than this sort of purist mentality of oh, I'm not going to compromise my art by having it in that kind of setting. Mm. I, think, I think that really means something. And I think that um, the church really embracing its position within the marketplace that right way, rather than what I think is this really tenuous rhetoric of authenticity as niche or coolness, uh, that really speaks to me. To where we've been So shame You mentioned this before that Radiohead is obviously not a religious band by any means, uh, but while Radiohead is certainly not attempting to do so, so at the risk uh, to not assume so, how is Radiohead incarnational? Yeah, that's a good question. The, um, I mean, to me, when Christians talk about incarnation, we mean incarnation in a very specific sense, right? It's incarnation mm-hmm. along with the cross. It's not incarnation as um, Jesus coming in power, Jesus coming in a form in which human capacities, you know, unlike sort of Nietzsche's Ubermensch, where it's like um, human beyond human to where human capacities are elevated. Mm. Rather, when God is incarnate in Christ, that's tied in with the cross. And Mm. part of the point of the cross to me is that it teaches us to look for God in places where we might not otherwise be tempted to look. Mm. It reframes the optics of where we see the divine. And so, um, so when I say incarnational and I apply that to Radiohead, I think that's, that's not only another way of talking about truth-telling, it's also a way of shifting our expectations as to what beauty and truth are going to look like and how they're going to present themselves mm-hmm. at any given time. The, um, I think, speaking for myself, and I think speaking for a lot of Radiohead fans, the effect of their music is to draw the listener in. And first, there's this moment of recognition, like, yeah, this, this despair, this frustration, it really names something about my life. But then there are also these moments of weirdness, of strangeness. It's like, but but it's being framed and presented in a way that's really foreign and strange to me. And I have to kind of grow and stretch in order to be able to take it all in. And I think that's a lot of, um, I think that's a lot of what Christians talk about when we talk about 
even the life and teachings of Jesus. Jesus plays off this all the time. On the one hand, there's something deeply familiar about this and deeply human about it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, right when people think that they're on solid ground, something shifts, something becomes just a little bit strange, and people have to stretch, even though the total effect of it is one of recognition. I understand something now about what it means to be human that I didn't understand before. Mm -hmm. What's the Christology of Paranoid Android? I want to <laughs> show off that I did my homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, um, you know, with Paranoid Android, you do have this, um, it's this, the, the song is framed within almost a kind of science fiction narrative of this alien coming to Earth and seeing just how, well, it's almost a pun, right? It's an alien who is alienated. <laughs> it's the <laughs> alienating features of modern society. And uh, what you have in that song, you know, it's one of the Radiohead songs where they're very distinct suites. It's very similar to the Beatles' Happiness is a Warm Gun mm -hmm. and that there are very distinct tempos and textual moments within the song. Right. And initially you have the alien in a very skeptical oppositional mood. You know, when I am king, you will be first against the wall. And then, in my view, you begin to have this lull towards what begins as it's almost kind of a false transcendence and in the video it's like there's a little literal angel right it's mm -hmm. rain down rain down and as i mentioned in the book in the original lyrics that was one of the times when tom actually mentions god the original lyric is um god loves his children that's why he kills them mm. <laughs> instead in the recorded version it's god loves his children god loves his children and so you have almost a kind of parody of, okay, God's being mentioned, there's this angelic chorus, rain down, rain down. And then all of a sudden, it just slams into this wall. You know, Johnny hits the distortion on the guitar. Yep. Um, Ed, if you see it in concert, Ed is uh, moving his guitar closer to the amp to get like actual feedback. Yep. And I think... Um, I think that is a kind of depiction of the reframing. It's like, look, if you want to look for God, don't look for it in this kind of hallmark, pseudo-transcendent, angelic beauty that lifts us out of the real. Mm -hmm. That's what that middle bridge might represent. But rather, if you really want to find God, go headfirst into the squall. Yeah. Slams back down. So it's like, you're looking, for, you're looking for God, you're looking for transcendence in the wrong place. And you could hear that as, okay, and therefore there is no God. But uh, I'd rather hear it as, no, if you're looking for God, you've got to put your eyes back down, not only into the real, but into the real right when it all begins to fall apart. Mm -hmm. um, another, another musical example that I mentioned in the book is um, a piece that I found really challenging over the last few years, which is David Lang's Matchstick Girl Passion. Mm -hmm. David Lang from a Bang on a Can. Matchstick Girl Passion is based on a Hans Christian Andersen story in which a young orphan girl is selling matches to Steve. And uh, she goes out into the winter and her shoes are stolen, so she's freezing. And eventually uh, she just has to sit down on a wall and she lights her last remaining matches one by one as she slowly freezes to death. It's mm. a really intense story. And in the Hans Christian Andersen story, it ends up being almost a strange kind of Christmas fable because she sees a vision of, um, I think it's her, either her mother or her grandmother, who um, is coming from heaven in order to collect her. And even though her body is freezing to death, her soul is with her loved one. And it's an ascent out of, out of her death into heaven. David Lang, when he writes Match the Girl Passion, he takes the, um, he takes the text of Hans Christian Andersen's story and he, and he interdisperses it with various moments from uh, like the St. Matthew Passion and all of these mm -hmm. passion orations. And he really wants, though, to, he says in an interview, there's no Christ in my little matchstick girl passion. Unlike the Hans Christian Andersen story, there's no 
heavenly ascent. There's no happy ending at the yeah. end. It's just the injustice of this poor orphan girl abandoned by society, freezing to death. And what I say in the book, and you know, sort of akin to this Christology of paranoid android is, well, no, if you have eyes to see, there is Christ, there is Christology in David Lang's telling of it. Mm -hmm. It's precisely the Christology that would say, look at this broken, you know, dare we say crucified body of an orphan who's so poor that she freezes to death, to death in the street on Christmas Eve and see in that the broken body of Christ. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't want to colonize that or, or hammer too much on that, but I do think David Lang thinks that there's no Christ in his story because to him, Christ means heavenly ascent out of the broken right. of the world. I want to say, no, there's Christ in his story if we look for Christ down in the thing itself. Today, I have the guys, or at least some of the guys, from Moonlight Graham, and uh, I just have to say, guys, what a great name. Like, it couldn't be more obscure, but it's one of those things where if somebody knows the obscurity of it, like, it's just like that immediate connection you've got going on. So yeah. allow yourselves to introduce yourselves, uh, and then tell, tell everybody what instrument you play in the band, and then, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit more about this name. I am Wesley. I play guitar and sing. I'm Andrew. I play guitar and banjo. And I'm Trey, and I play drums, and I also sing. Oh, awesome. okay. So you're like a Aaron Gillespie. You're like a <laughs> Phil Collins. Oh, nice. Oh, okay, you named Aaron Gillespie before Phil Collins? <laughs> that, that just that dates me, I think, a little bit about where, where I'm kind of at in history. <laughs> I, would have, I, I always wanted to be Aaron Gillespie when I, when I was I really <laughs> wanted to be Aaron Gillespie, too. Okay, so we have to talk about Moonlight Graham. Uh, where did you get this name? Again, I tried to avoid asking bands about where they get their name, but this one is something else. No, uh, we were, um, Andrew and I were on a road trip with some friends up to San Francisco and you just get a cabin fever in the car. And all of a sudden I started doing a James Earl Jones impression, which just consisted of him saying Moonlight Graham a whole bunch. And it was a <laughs> terrible impression. So weirdly, that kind of snowballed a couple months later. We were looking for a band name to Moonlight Graham based off of this stupid inside joke we all had. But that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> I feel like there's something more to be said, Trey. Is there... No, that's actually the Okay, story. okay. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So, and we meant, we were talking about before, uh, it, it's not like anybody has really picked up the obscurity of the name because of the actual baseball player, but only because of the movie. Only because of the movie. We, we, we wish it wasn't based off of a joke. We wish it was based off of the baseball player. There's more like, uh, there's a beautiful poetry to that story. <laughs> or, and, a curse, yeah, sure. yeah, or, or, or a curse, either way. But uh, it's, yeah, it's mostly based off of the pop culture reference. So great. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the last full length album you guys released was in 2016. It's almost 2020. So the almost four years in between now. What has happened with you all between then? We've um, been playing a lot of shows, gone on two tours, two tours, yeah, two two tours. Um, released a handful of singles, which we're pretty happy with. Uh, I don't know, just playing a lot of a lot of music um, for the past four years, actually. Yeah, we 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 play more shows than we probably should. Yeah. <laughs> Which we're which we're starting to change a little bit, because sometimes I mean there was a there's a good stretch where we were playing, like actual showcases at great venues, and then there's other times where we're playing in bars, working on stuff. But when you play in bars, you also have to play for three hours, so you do mm -hmm. that once, uh, 
a weekend for <laughs> a, for a pretty long time and you get pretty pretty tired but i mean it's all it's all fun but yeah just sticking to and focusing on our original music is kind of something that we've been trying to do more yeah for like the past year or so we've been really working on just playing showcases not playing those super long sets and kind of like just making sure our, making sure the audience that we're playing to making sure the audience that we're playing to is like there to see live music rather than just being at a bar and be like oh here's music cool. yeah Let's i'm not i'm not gonna remember them tomorrow yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so so the people are actually coming to see you and not just uh that you happen to them yeah yeah which is which is a difficult uh line to to cross over when when you're a band that's playing in a lot of venues like shows are shows but there is like a certain thing with playing music that's inherently yours and winning people over that way than with mm. playing stuff that people like are f familiar with there's mm -hmm. a little bit more pride that that goes into it it definitely re reinforces our creativity to keep on trying to make more music mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you can only play tom petty so many times before you almost get sick of tom <laughs> petty oh man we just we do we do the way we get rid of that is we do medleys of songs it's because like <laughs> yeah. you, start playing, you know you start playing a song and nobody really wants to hear more than 45 seconds of it at a bar so we give them that and then we go into another song in the same key and yeah everybody's happy mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome okay so you you were talking a little bit before about how over the course uh of in, in the last few years you released an e or not an ep but a single kind of uh you know every once in a while and so you really took your time on these singles and then you know slowly kind of released them out when they were ready uh, can you talk talk a little bit about the process of really kind of dialing things back and, and taking things really slowly and being really patient with the development of your music yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I feel like we're we're in a time, at least in like art, where uh, like sort of content is king, and like everyone's just kind of fighting to get content out as often mm -hmm. as possible. Which I think we kind of did also for a while. Yeah. Um. So I think for us, it's kind of been important to really just kind of take that step back and be like, hey, yeah, we can release all of these right now and then start working on new stuff to release, like, or we can like just kind of sit on it and see how we feel about it in three months. And I think that's kind of was really nice, was like a really nice experience for us to be able to like, know we have things ready to put out. We're just maybe not ready to put it out yet. So we can kind of take our time getting it out. And I think we actually like, we saw a lot more response from people that listen to us like on Spotify and stuff mm -hmm. by spacing it out like mm -hmm. that. So I think mm -hmm. it actually worked out really well for yeah. us. Yeah, it happened like that with some of those songs like, like one of the songs that we released is called Easy. And that one in particular is like, I'm proud of it just because it literally took a year to write and it's like a, about a year of my life and mm. it just happened and it just like kind of just worked and finished and kind of bookend bookended um, that like time. So it was nice to like release that and then take our time with it. Um, but just stuff like that, taking more time with songs, letting songs kind of happen instead of forcing them. Sometimes it just doesn't feel good when you, when you right. try and force songwriting and it just is really frustrating. Mm -hmm. So I know that you have some new songs and new writing in the works. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what's down the pipeline? Yeah, so we're we've kind of started pre-production on a new single that's coming along like really nicely, um, and then we're the goal is to release that before the end of the year, and then uh, at the top of the year really start kicking into gear uh, with a, a new full-length album. Um, and we want to try to take a different approach to this one where previously we had, you know, we'd written these songs and played them out and kind of like honed them in live. And then we would record them and then we'd listen to them and then we'd keep playing and like we'd release them three months after they're released. We have tweaked and kind of like the songs have matured a little bit and the way we play them three months after they're released, we like more than when they were originally released. So we want to, like really restrain ourselves from releasing right away and like let the songs mature before we release them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which I is agree. a, which is a good, a, well a good thing to, to realize. It's, it's pretty cool. Just like getting into a band like this and not realizing I mean, how long have you been playing together for a pretty long time, but just stuff like that, that you would only learn by being a band that's done stuff before. That's kind of a cool feeling to learn. Right. Like just 
the growing pains. Yeah, even just being able to recognize that like, hey, we can finish writing this song today, but like we're gonna like it better in like three months. So like, let's mm. keep playing it. Let's let's maybe start introducing it into shows live. See how we let it kind of, as Andrew was saying, like let it mature a little bit before we actually lay that lay down the recording and, and put mm -hmm. it out. Yeah, and I think right. I think like along with that maturity, like we have, I don't know, a, like a fair number of songs that we've written like across our albums and whatnot. And I think like the tendency is to when you write a song that you know that you're that you like and that you're proud of, you're like, I got to get this out because yeah the well might dry up and like this might be it i gotta like i gotta you know i gotta show this to people uh yeah. but i think we're we have a little more confidence in ourselves now that like it's we're we're, we're not just getting lucky like yeah we do maybe kind of know what we're doing a little bit <laughs> a little bit yeah at this, at this point like just yeah a little bit, who knows just for now i'll probably change my mind in like five minutes <laughs> Well, thank you so much, guys. This has been super fun. Uh, I, I really enjoy the music. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of the indie world. And anytime you can throw in like a little banjo in there, uh, I, I'm really just uh, enamored by the dynamics that a band like you guys uh, are able to create with your sound. And uh, I, I really appreciate just even the, the songwriting process, the, the slowness and the patientness. Uh, that there isn't a hurry, like you said, to just release content, but you really um, are patient to create the art. So uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, man. What's your favorite Radiohead album and why? Yeah, again, I think it's Hail to the Thief, uh, even though there, there are some songs on there. I think they've said that they wish that they had left a couple songs off, like mm. uh, We Talk Young Blood, that sort of thing. Um, Hail to the Thief, I think, really gets it right, because it starts off with a political protest song, 2 plus 2 equals 5. So good, yeah, no, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's just, I saw him at a Lollapalooza one time, uh, this outdoor venue. And while they were playing two plus two equals five, uh, I swear a police helicopter with like its high beams and so on was scanning the crowd at the festival. It was just absolutely perfect. But then I think they do what they do so well, which is that immediately the political gets caught up in this broader sort of existential mm. of like, okay, if we have political terror, where does that come from? What are the terrors within us? What are the human possibilities within us? So I think they're there where I end and you begin. Um, it's this, I, I think it ends up again being this performance of the fact that if we talk about what it is that is really alienating us, what is really scaring us, we could certainly notice how that plays out in the political, but first we also have to look inside mm -hmm. and look at our broader condition. And it gets to the point to where you almost can't tell one from the other. Mm -hmm. And there too, yeah, I, I keep saying this, but I think it's also an album that has some of their most intensely beautiful songs. Like they're there, you know, especially mm -hmm. when it hits again in that, uh, that bridge. It is this sense of we are going to oppose brokenness and fear with the rebellion that is beauty. Mm. So yeah, so I love Hail to the Thief that mm. way. It's great. So underrated. Mm. How do you see what Radiohead can teach Christian theology? How do you see that being inspiring and liberating theological work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Um... Yeah, as you mentioned, I work with pastors a lot too. And one of the one of the ways that pastors tend to think is, oh, I've got all these thoughts inside me, but if I'm gonna keep my job, I have to talk in a certain way. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, if, if my congregation knew what I really thought about this, or 
you know, when I'm teaching pastors in class, they're like, oh, this might be good in, in here, but if I talked this way in my congregation, there'd be no way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wrong. Not only do I think, I mean, I get where they're coming from. I'm not trying to be hard on them, but I wish that they could see, look at the way in which a band like Radiohead or other kinds of things that their congregation is going to be engaging with. People are crying out, not only for authenticity, but for hard-won experiences of beauty that don't stem from easy answers. Mm -hmm. It's like, your people may talk in church as if they want religion, or maybe they are using religion as a kind of escape from that mess. But even the people that are using religion as an escape from that mess, I think, are consuming art, maybe even making art, that shows that there is this hunger for ambiguity. There is this hunger for trying to live humanely, insanely within the mystery. Mm. And so I think the liberating part of what I'm trying to do is to say, to, especially to people who are tasked with teaching or preaching the gospel, look at what people are actually hungry for in terms of what it, and again, that's why the popularity of Radiohead is so important to me. Mm. It's, um, it's not just the fact that I think they make fantastic art. It's the fact that they've done it in such a way that's exposed cultural nerve, if that mm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I might look at the way in which this nerve has been exposed and have the courage and the conviction to take the risk to preach and teach into that. For most of the pastors I know, it's in them anyway. <laughs> they think mm. that people aren't ready to hear it. I'm trying to come along and say, people are volunteering and choosing to hear it and buying albums and going to concerts. They're going out of their way to hear it. Mm. They're just not sure if the church can talk that way. Mm. That's where they don't necessarily have confidence. Mm -hmm. And um, so I hope my book could be one tiny flake of good news for pastors who are looking for encouragement and empowerment or teachers or writers or whoever who are looking for encouragement and empowerment to say, can I be as raw and vulnerable and struggling with my stuff and still find an audience for it? If, radio, if Radiohead is any indication, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Last question, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yeah, so uh, if you Google me, Rob Saylor, uh, Robert Saylor, S-A-L-E-R, then uh, uh, my books come up. Uh, but what I'd really like to do is just have conversations with people. So uh, if you want to email me at the seminary, rsailer, R-S-A-L-E-R, at cts.edu. Um, believe me, uh, I do a lot of administration. There is nothing I would rather do than take a break from the paperwork and so on than have a <laughs> good uh, email or uh, Facebook mm -hmm. or whatever conversation you want. So if people want to get in touch with me, hit me up. Yeah, hopefully it distracts you enough from grading my Bonhoeffer essay. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will distract me from that, Mason. Oh, man. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Trying to get out of that. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Rob. This is super great. I'm a, as a Radiohead fan myself, and as someone who's really obviously interested in theology, uh, this book couldn't have been more perfect, uh, and I really appreciated it. Um, and I really appreciate the approach you take um, take with it, the, the, the fact that you you posture it as something where theology can learn from Radiohead rather than trying to synthesize Radiohead and theology in this really clumsy way. Uh, you avoid that, uh, and you intentionally approach it in a very different way and in a way that I really appreciate. So thank you so much for your book and uh, for uh, having placing uh, Radiohead and theology in conversation. Great to talk with you, Mason. Thank you. If you would like to connect with both Rob and Moonlight Graham in their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.
you think you're 